This podcast is sponsored by L.L. Bean, who makes it easy and fun to simply step outside. That might mean breaking a speed record in a rugged, built-for-fun sonic snow tube, walking an extra block in a warm, weather-resistant down jacket, or just taking a breath on your doorstep before cozying up in a quilted sweatshirt. For however you experience the outdoors, shop clothing and gear at llbean.com. Be an outsider. The Upper Delaware River cleaves northeastern Pennsylvania from New York. It's a quiet area flanked by tree-covered rolling hills at the foot of the Catskill Mountains that are protected by the National Park Service as a scenic and recreational river. In the 1800s, the Lackawaxen region of the Upper Delaware River was a bustling area, punctuated by industrial transportation. The canal era provided access to water transport where there was no natural river or lake. It was much easier to move heavy goods along a waterway on a barge than on horseback or pulled over land via carriages or wagons. Opened in 1828 as the first privately financed canal in the United States, the 108-mile-long Delaware and Hudson Canal enabled transport of raw materials out from rural Pennsylvania through over 100 locks with a 16-mile gravity railway added to scale the steep inclines of the Music Mountains. Using mules to draw the canal barges along the man-made waterway dug parallel to the Lackawaxen River, the round trip could be completed in 7 to 10 days, with the mules pulling at 1 to 3 miles per hour, assuming there were no delays or mishaps along the way. One such area that could cause significant delays was where the canal crossed the upper Delaware River via a pool of slow-moving water formed by a slackwater dam. Loggers floated their timber rafts down the river through the busy intersection with the Delaware and Hudson Canal, where barges brought anthracite coal from the coal mines of Pennsylvania to the Hudson River in New York, where it could be transported by steamship to thriving industrial marketplaces. The mule-drawn barges crossed the river in a centuries, if not millennia-old manner. The mules and their drivers via rope ferry, and the barges themselves via pole paddling. As anthracite became a coveted commodity, and logging flourished in the abundant hardwood forests of the region, the traffic in the intersection caused serious delays in transport, and sometimes the disruption and potential devastation of collisions between the timber rafts and the coal barges. Hence, John Augustus Roebling, a civil engineer with an innovative approach to suspension bridges, was hired to build four aqueduct bridges. It may be hard to imagine today, but the concept was to carry the canal over the river on bridges designed with a trough or flume of water for floating the coal barges over the river, thus avoiding the timber traffic. The aqueduct bridges included towpaths adjacent to the trough so the mules could continue to power the barges through these above-ground canal detours. I'm Jason Epperson, and this is the America's National Parks Podcast. If the name John Augustus Roebling sounds familiar, his fame and popular culture arose through the design of the Brooklyn Bridge in New York City. But in the transportation and engineering realms, 
Roebling made a name for himself through his innovative use of wire cables for suspension bridges rather than open-link metal chains or hempen cables, which had been used in bridges for thousands of years. The advantages of wire cables were numerous. Greater stability of the bridge, fewer spans needed, longer bridges possible, ability to transport heavier loads, ease of construction, and lower cost. Using this principle, he designed and built the Upper Delaware River Aqueduct that bears his name, Roebling's Delaware Aqueduct, now sometimes referred to as the Roebling Bridge. 30 feet above the water, the aqueduct spans 535 feet and was capable of carrying a several-ton load of water, barges, and cargo across the Upper Delaware River between Lackawaxon, Pennsylvania, and Minisink Ford, New York. With more, here's Abby. Roebling's Delaware Aqueduct employed the same concept that the ancient Romans used, a structure built to convey water, but taking it a step further to mean a water-filled bridge that allows vessels on a waterway to cross ravines, valleys, or in this case, a river, and adds the then-new technological process of wire cabling to create this engineering marvel. Basically, the wire cables are attached to stone piers. Cast iron saddles stabilize the cables, wrought iron suspended rods sit on the saddles, and suspenders attached to hanger plates support the bridge flooring. The bridge is comprised of four spans, requiring three stone piers sunk at intervals into the riverbed. Previously, five or more spans would be needed to traverse this distance. Decreasing the number of spans resulted in a significant cost savings, both on materials and labor. Each of the two eight-and-a-half-inch cables contained over 2,000 individual iron wires. Part of the ingenuity of Roebling's design was placing the cables between the trough and the towpath, rather than at the outermost edge of the bridge, increasing the stability of the structure while requiring fewer support beams. The cables themselves were created by a process called air spinning. In pairs, the thin wrought iron wires were spun back and forth across the river over the top of the masonry piers, spliced together as needed to complete each wire bundle. In this way, the cables, each consisting of seven wire bundles, were created on site at the bridge. The technique of air spinning is still in use today, nearly 200 years after Roebling built the aqueduct. John Augustus Roebling truly was a technological pioneer, a trailblazing engineer with a reputation for precision and optimization, with an eye firmly set toward the future. He earned a good part of his fortune from his wire cable business, apart from his bridge designs, and was awarded several patents related to the wire cables and his innovative process of installing them. Never content to merely maintain the status quo, Roebling applied his principles to an expanding portfolio of projects, from road bridges to aqueducts to railroad bridges. Recognizing that rail transportation would supplant the canal system, he contributed significantly to the technical literature regarding modern design of railroad bridges before building the world's first suspension railroad bridge over the Niagara River, linking the Rochester and Niagara Falls branch of the New York Central Railroad with the Great Western Railway of Canada. 
Sadly, Roebling did not live to see the completion of his magnum opus, the Brooklyn Bridge. He succumbed to tetanus as a result of injuries suffered on site during the early days of its construction. But his legacy had already been ensured, partly due to his work on the Delaware Aqueduct. Roebling's Delaware Aqueduct is the sole survivor of this series of four aqueducts, and it is the oldest existing wire suspension bridge in the United States. Now part of the Upper Delaware Scenic and Recreational River within the National Park Service, it preserves the engineering innovations that changed the entire discipline of suspension bridges, as well as the contributions of canals to the industrial progress of the country and the progression of transportation over time. In addition to its inclusion in the national park system, Roebling's Delaware Aqueduct has also been designated a National Historic Landmark and a National Civil Engineering Landmark. Roebling's Delaware Aqueduct operated for 50 years from 1848 to 1898. By the end of the 19th century, the use of canals for major industrial transport was overtaken by railroads, and the canal era came to an end. The aqueduct was drained of water and converted to carry land vehicles as a private toll bridge. The toll house abuts the New York side of the bridge and remains there today. Among the modifications over time, the towpaths were cut off and the exterior wooden walls of the trough were removed. The icebreakers, which had contributed to a longer transport season and greater safety on the river, were left to decay on their own. Much of the bridge, with the exception of the ironwork, was in poor condition when the National Park Service assumed ownership, and a major restoration effort commenced. Notably, the removal of the towpaths and trough walls had led to instability of the bridge, and a great deal of wood rot had occurred. In fact, in 1977, a truck plunged through the rotted deck of the bridge, putting a final nail in the coffin of the modified aqueduct's use as a vehicular bridge. Using Roebling's original plans, the wooden portions of the bridge, including the superstructure or exoskeleton, the icebreakers, aqueduct walls, and towpaths were reconstructed. A concrete roadbed was added, replacing the weight of the water in the original aqueduct, for which the specifications of the bridge had been painstakingly calculated. The cables and almost all the ironwork from the original suspension system have been preserved in the renovated bridge. Once again open to one-lane traffic, the bridge carries about 150 cars a day over the Delaware River between Pennsylvania and New York. Its unique style of angular white pine wood work emerges from the heavy foliage of the riverbanks. Driving through the trough is a singularly unique experience, with its sunken roadway hemmed in by the wooden walls. But visitors should take the time to park their cars in one of the lots on either side of the bridge, enjoy a picnic, or hike along the banks of the river, and then walk the towpath. In addition to the spectacular views of the rushing current of the Delaware River, visible from the bridge, you can get a close-up of Roebling's groundbreaking engineering and the architectural and aesthetic details of the bridge. Several informational placards provide background, history, and engineering details. And if you peer over the rail on the northern side, you'll see the icebreakers below, stretching out their long planks into the onrushing river current. The pink-painted ironwork enclosing the bridge's cables is cut away on the New York side of the bridge, 
providing a detailed view of the wire bundles and a glimpse into the brilliant mind of perhaps the most celebrated bridge engineer in the country's history. The Upper Delaware Scenic and Recreational River is a vast region of which Roebling's Aqueduct is just one feature. Aside from the engineering marvel, the river and its surrounds provide a raw natural beauty, as well as sites of geological, historic, and cultural importance. The Native American history of the region spans over 10,000 years. The landscape is carved from glacial deposits and outwashes, leaving behind exposed bedrock, gorges, and fossilized plants and animals. Bluestone, shale, and peat were left behind by the geological process. First rising to prominence when the railroads provided access to the region for city dwellers in the 1870s, the banks of the Upper Delaware River became prime real estate for boarding houses, hotels, and even resorts. Today, resort vacationers have been replaced by more rugged adventurers seeking to immerse themselves in the pristine setting. Set along five counties and 15 townships straddling New York and Pennsylvania, this scenic area offers ample recreational opportunities, including canoeing, kayaking, rafting, tubing, fishing, hiking, and bird watching. Known for its clean water, low levels of pollution, plentiful food supply, and northern hardwood forests, the area provides a habitat for a wide variety of biodiverse wildlife, including the bald eagle, muskrat, mink, beaver, river otter, black bear, bobcats, and American eels. Ecologically important, the habitat provides a protective cover for the watershed, which impacts the quality of the water in towns far downstream, as well as providing a sustainable spawning and rearing habitat for migratory fish. Operated in partnership with the state and local government, the Upper Delaware Scenic and Recreational River protects and conserves this free-flowing, undammed segment of the river. A trip here can be coupled with other national park units in the region, such as the Delaware Water Gap and Steamtown National Historical Park, as well as the local sites devoted to the history of anthracite. This episode of America's National Parks was hosted by me, Jason Epperson, narrated by Abby Epperson, and written by Lauren Eisenberg Davis. Help support the show and independent journalism by becoming a member of the America's National Parks Patreon community. For less than one latte a month, you can help us increase public lands awareness by sharing these stories. More information can be found at patreon.com slash national parks podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram to search National Parks Podcast. You can also join our America's National Parks Facebook group, now nearing 100,000 members strong. To get all your National Park questions answered and see tons of amazing photos and videos. And if you're interested in RV travel, give us a listen over at the RV Miles Podcast. Today's show was sponsored by L.L. Bean. Follow the hashtag BeAnOutsider and visit LLBean.com to find great gear for exploring the national parks.